the only way for me to save her life and to keep her on the straight track is to ask her to leave my apartment. And it sucks because I'm so scared of what might happen. You're listening to Now What? A podcast where we celebrate the human spirit by sharing stories of strength and resilience. For those going through hard times or looking to get inspired to change their own life, we're your hosts, Jen and Tisha. Hi, welcome back to Now What? I'm Jen. And I'm Tisha. This week, we are going to be joined by Jessica Dawson. Jessica is someone who I've known for quite a while, actually through her sister, probably like, I don't know, 15 years or so ago. But mostly now we just keep in contact sort of on Facebook. And I'm a member of a group that Jessica runs, um, which she'll probably talk about. But I invited Jessica to be on, to be a guest on the show today because she has an incredible story and she's really passionate about empowering other women. She is a recovering alcoholic and addict, and she's also the mother of a 21-year-old daughter who's also in recovery. So she kind of gets this sort of sobriety piece from her own personal experience, but also from a parent's perspective as well. So thank you so much for being with here with us today. Thank you for having me guys. I'm so, I'm so excited to be here. We're so thankful that you were willing to talk. Yeah. Yeah. More than willing. I couldn't wait actually, but. Yay. (laughs) Great. We love that. That's so exciting. Yeah. It is Uh, kind of fun. It is. It's really great. So wherever you want to start. Okay. Okay. So, um, I guess I'll just say, uh, hi, everyone. My name's Jessica. I'm an alcoholic addict, recovering alcoholic addict. I think what I'm going to do is just kind of start from, like, I'll try to make it sort of quick, but I'll start from where I, like, how I kind of became an alcoholic, and then how I got better, and then what my life kind of was like afterwards, and then a little bit about my daughter as well. So um, I started drinking when I was younger, I think just like everyone, um, like as a teenager, just going to parties and stuff like that, not nothing, nothing too big. And uh, I had a lot of stuff happen in my childhood that I think at the time I didn't realize was traumatic. But as I've gotten older and like looked back and tried to like figure out why I did certain things that I did, I realized that they were very traumatic. Um, And I think when I was a teenager, I didn't realize all of this stuff. It wasn't until later on in life when I became sober and I looked back on my childhood that I realized all of this stuff kind of played a, played a part in me drinking and using and everything. But so when I was a teenager, I just started drinking like everybody else, just at parties and stuff like that. I was about uh, 15 years old and I have three sisters. I'm the youngest of four girls. And two of my older sisters had had children when they were teenagers. So my One sister had her first child when she was 15, and my other sister had her child when she was 14. And when my sisters were having children, I thought that at 15, I was ready (laughs) to have a child because, like, that's what everybody does in my family. And uh, I had already, you know, been taking care of these kids for my sisters and stuff. So I decided, you know what, um, let's become a mom. So I became a mom at 16. And the person that I was with, my daughter's father, he was my first love, my first everything, and I worshipped the ground he walked on, but it was a very abusive relationship, mostly emotionally and verbally, uh, not so much physically, but just would say a lot of things that tore down my self-esteem. My, my self-esteem was already pretty small, but he, he tore it down even more, um, 
And the reason why I'm talking about this is because it kind of works its way into my alcoholism becoming worse and worse as I got older. After I had my daughter, me and my daughter's father broke up and I was single for a little while, but I was still madly in love with my daughter's father. Um, Like I said, he was my first everything. He was my daughter's father. So I had this like huge connection with him and I was devastated that he broke up with me. And at the time I was doing everything I could to take my mind off of it. So I was like meeting a bunch of guys and doing stupid things. And so I met a guy who was 12 years older than me at this time. I think at this time, at this point, I was like 18 or 19. And I liked him. I thought he was good looking and whatever. We met, we started dating for a little while. And uh, at this point in my life, I had, like I said, zero self-esteem. And this guy was somebody who made me feel like I was the most beautiful woman in the room. But he was unbelievably physically abusive. At the time, honestly, I felt like being physically abused is the better of the two like whether you're like if you're going to be emotionally abused or physically abused it's better to be physically abused and at the time I felt like I didn't deserve to have neither like I deserved to have something or sacrifice something in the relationship I remember I was just drinking kind of normally not not a lot and we were leaving his apartment one day and he had a young daughter and we were in the elevator and she had dropped a bunch of books and pencils that she had had in her hand And when they hit the floor, he turned around and he started kicking her. And this is his, at the time, nine-year-old daughter. And he was yelling and calling her names and kicking her. And I was like, I can't be with somebody like this. This is right at the beginning of the relationship with me and him. And so I was like, forget this. Like, how can I be with somebody who's going to do this to their kid? I'm like, forget it. I'm out of here. So I told him, like, I was done with him. And I walked out of the apartment, walked across the parking lot. And he was like yelling for me to come back. And he's like, Jessica, come here. And this is about three weeks into our relationship. And he's like, please, like, come back. He's like, you have no idea. He's like, I'm in love with you. And when he said he was in love with me, I was like, oh, he's in love with me. I didn't realize that. And I was like, well, maybe we can work on things and maybe I can get him some help. And maybe like just ridiculous thoughts at the time. I don't know what I was thinking, to be honest. So our relationship loved you. Yeah. Well, I was thinking at the time, like, oh my God, somebody actually loves me. And with my daughter's father, something that he said that stuck with me for so long was when I got pregnant with my daughter, I, I literally from like under my boobs to like right above my crotch is like tons of stretch marks, like all over the place. And I think it was just because I was super young and my body was just like, what the hell? And it just stretched out. To, I mean, people get stretch marks, but it was, as far as I'm aware, it's probably the worst stretch marks I've ever seen on someone's stomach. And even to this day at 39, um, they were really bad. And I used to feel so bad about them. And I remember he said to me one time, if you ever plan on leaving me or being with somebody else, he's like, you, you're going to have to get some makeup for those stretch marks because no man will ever want you with that. And I remember taking that with me and thinking about that for the longest time. So when I found out that this new guy that I was seeing not only accepted me for this three weeks that we've been seeing each other, but was in love with me. I was like, oh my God, I'm never going to find this again. I got to grab onto this with everything I have. And we were in a long, crazy, abusive, horrible relationship. But when I got with him is when my drinking started to increase to more of, I, I felt like I needed to drink when I was with him for many reasons. One was because he, he would make me feel like I was beautiful, but at the same time, in the car when we're like driving down the street he would like look out the window and stare at a woman and like he knew that I was looking at him 
staring at this woman and he wouldn't like he would just follow her all the way down the sidewalk and like I just kind of had to put up with that so I guess I don't know if that would be considered abusive but I think that's like it's just not cool for somebody to do that when you're in a relationship with them. yeah it's disrespectful it's a dick yeah. move it's disrespectful yeah. yeah yeah so we were in this relationship and it was getting pretty ugly I was drinking all the time with him I drank a lot with him because it made me feel better about my choice to be with him the people that were around his house um he was an ex-convict he was in jail for five years for robbing a bank and he so the people that he knew and and were was close with were people he met in jail people like just not the best people that you would want around i'm not saying people in jail that are you know they're bad people but they just there was just a lot of drugs alcohol um crime a lot of crime and uh I brought my daughter around this and like I was with this man for 11 years. So my daughter was a year and a half when I met him. So she, her entire childhood, she knew this man as her stepfather basically. And she had a pretty good relationship with him. He was pretty good with her. I'm with him where, you know, I, I still at this point, I live on my own with my daughter in my own apartment, but I see him every Wednesday and on weekends, like we would spend the weekends together and Wednesday we would get together. And this happened for 11 years. And throughout this 11 years, there was a lot of abuse, a lot of crazy times, cops being called. He had like blackened my eyes quite a few times. He had done like just horrible things to me. And I would leave him and be like, I'm done with this. I'm not going to get this. I'm not going to take this abuse anymore. And then I would go home and then I would start drinking again. And I would feel so low about myself. And I'd call him and then somehow I'd get back with him and we'd be back in the relationship. And it was just like a cycle that just kept going and going and going. Mm-hmm. And so at this time, when I was with him, this was like, I'd say about five years into the relationship, this was the height of my addiction. This is when I was drinking and using pretty much every day. And at the time, about five years into this relationship, I was with my best friend. We had gone to this place to, they called it the studios. It was where everybody hung out and like made music and did drugs, basically, the entire time. And so I was there, we're doing drugs and doing whatever. And I remember we were talking to this, like, big time drug dealer guy and he you know grocery bags like food basics bags or like Sobeys bags like what Mm -hmm. they typically look like so he had Mm -hmm. a bag like that and the bottom corner of the bag was like filled with cocaine like that's how much cocaine he had and he had thrown it down onto the coffee table and he's just like go at it go nuts like do what you want with it and we're just like oh my god this is amazing and at the time we were talking he was trying to get us to work for him meaning you know, prostitution and everything. And at the time I was actually considering it, which is pretty crazy. So me and my friend were talking to him and we're sitting on these couches in this studio place and it's all dark and we're like, you know, on tons of drugs and alcohol. And I looked over at my best friend and she was, um, she started to convulse and she was her like her head flipped back and all of the veins came out in her neck and she was like seizuring, I guess, having an overdose. And I remember I'm looking at her and I'm screaming, like, somebody give me a phone. Let me, like, I need to call an ambulance. And at the time we were with my best friend's aunt. Her aunt uh, had a husband who owned these studios. And anyway, I'm getting up, I'm screaming, I'm asking everyone for a phone. And even I finally found a phone. I called 911. I'm on the phone with the 911 operator. And my friend is still convulsing on the couch. And I'm asking everybody where we are, like, what is the address here? I don't know. Like, I need to get an ambulance here right away. And even my best friend's aunt wouldn't give me the address because 
they didn't want to get in trouble for having drugs and people there and everything. Fortunately, my best friend survived this. But basically what happened was she was convulsing for about 20 minutes. I'm on the phone trying to tell these people where we are. I'm not exactly entirely sure what happened at this point because I it was super traumatic for me. I think I probably blacked some things out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But um, I remember somebody had slapped her in the face and was like trying to get her to like come to and she came to and then we all kind of settled down a little bit and we were all still on drugs and alcohol and everything else and we get a knock on the door like you could hear it upstairs in the the studio thing and it was the ambulance and I was like okay they found us or whatever so the guy who owned the place goes upstairs and he's like yeah somebody you know some guy came by with some girl and she was like overdosing and he left her like on the steps so we called you guys but then he took off and they, they they got up and they left and they're like oh okay and they just like left and we were like sitting in these studios and I was just like my god my friend just overdosed and I'm like I I was still high on the drugs and I was in a really really bad place at this point like mentally mm-hmm. and yeah so the reason why I'm I'm telling you guys this story is because from that that moment on is where is when I stopped using drugs and alcohol for fun and started using it to cope with even being able to fall asleep. I went through post-traumatic stress disorder after seeing that with her and I couldn't shower. Like I couldn't have a shower and wash my hair with my eyes closed because when I closed my eyes, I saw her convulsing and I was just, it was a really like horrible time for me. And I remember I couldn't sleep without the use of alcohol because I I closed my eyes and I would see it. Anybody who's been through post-traumatic stress disorder knows like it's, all consuming you know so that's when the alcohol and drug addiction took a turn and that was uh, about like I said five years into my relationship with my my ex and uh, so it just got worse things got really bad Uh, more using more drugs more abuse uh, lots of things happened and then I when my daughter was nine years old she came to me and told me that she was sexually abused by my ex-boyfriend's roommate and it was incredibly hard knowing that you weren't there to protect your child or you were there and you didn't protect your child it's one of the worst things a parent has to deal with I'm sure there are other things too I don't want to like make light of anything else that parents go through but this was huge for me Mm -hmm. something I didn't mention in the beginning was when I was two years old my parents got a divorce because they just I guess they weren't in love anymore or whatever and me and my sisters used to go see my dad on weekends and when I was about seven years old we were told that I was no longer going to be allowed to see him because he was sexually molesting my sister I was like I said I was about six or seven at the time and we would go to like counseling sessions all the time and we would go to like sexual abuse was very in my face it was in my face from when I was six or seven years old I felt like I would know the signs I felt like I would know what to look for and I I felt like I almost like you recognize it yeah I just thought that I would be more aware and when I found out that my daughter was sexually abused I was like obviously devastated but the interesting thing is is that at the time when I had found out about her abuse I the disease of alcoholism no word of a lie I felt like I could not be there for her and I could not help her unless I continued to drink because then I wouldn't be able to sleep and I would if I didn't get to sleep I wouldn't be able to get up with her in the morning and take her to school and I convinced myself that the only way I could help my daughter is if I continue drinking and I don't know what the hell I was thinking but that at the time that's how messed up that's the disease right that's that's the alcoholism convincing you that you need it that you're better somehow with it yeah when I think back to it I'm thinking like what the hell was I thinking but I had actually shared something on uh 
a women's group. I, I have a women's group called Strong Ass Women. Shout out to them. <laughs> um, but no, I have this women's group and I shared something the other day because it was something that I was thinking about. I was thinking about being a recovering alcoholic and I was thinking about what it would be like to drink again. And I just have these like thoughts in my head, like wonder, I wonder if I could have a few and be okay. And, and I was thinking like, why am I doing this? Why am I fighting so hard? Why am I trying so hard? And it brought me back right to when I found out about my daughter and she basically what happened once I found out that she was abused is we went to the police, we got, we had the guy charged. We did everything we could. I put her into counseling and I would go to counseling with her. I remember, so she was in counseling at the time. We, I think we went for like six months or something like that. And she wasn't doing the best at the time. Um, but like I said, I would, I continued to drink. And then about a year in, a year after I had found out about her, I had decided that I was going to stop drinking. And it had just gotten to the point where it was really bad. I was going to lose my job. My daughter told me that she didn't want to live with me anymore. She was going to go live with a friend of mine. And I knew that once my daughter left my apartment, I would have nothing left to keep me sober and that it would be the end for me because I, I just knew that I would drink myself or drug myself to death. So I decided I was going to go get sober. So I, I went and I, I went to a meeting. My daughter actually came with me to my very first AA meeting. And thinking back, the fact that she was so young, like I think at the time she was like 10 or 11, bringing her to an AA meeting probably wasn't the best idea. I don't know how people really think about that. But I remember I had said to her, like she was very aware of my issues. Um, she had, out of anybody in the entire world, she was the one who had to deal with the most. And I told her that I wanted to try and go get sober. And she said, I'm going to come with you. And I was like, you're going to come with me to the meeting? And she's like, yeah, I want to come with you, mom. And I'm like, are you sure? And she's like, yeah, I want to come. And I'm like, okay. So we went to the meeting together. And I remember I'm sitting down. It was funny, actually, because it was a church basement. And I guess they were having some sort of church ceremony in one of the other rooms. So they decided to use like the Sunday school room. And so like all the chairs were like little kids chairs. So we're like, we're all sitting in these little kids chairs. And I'm hearing all these people talk about like, like do different readings and stuff. And uh, I looked around the room and I was like, I'm looking and I'm like, oh my God, like all these people in here are all, one, they're all men. And two, they're all over the age of 70. So I remember <laughs> like I turned to my daughter and I was like, Abby, like they're all men and they're all like super old. And I'm like, I don't know if I fit in here. And she's like, I don't care, mom, you're going to at least 10. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> so I remember getting up and leaving this meeting. And when I walked out of the meeting, some guy came to me and he was like, did you get your 24 hour chip? And I was like, no, I, I thought you had to be part of a group to get a chip. And he's like, no, no, it's basically you stand up and you say that you're going to commit 24 hours of being sober and you get your chip and whatever. And I was like, oh, okay, well, okay, sure. I'll have it. And I like, I put my hand out for him to give me the chip. And he's like, no, you have to take it from me. And I was like, okay, weird, but whatever. So he like held out his hand and I took the chip from him. And I remember when I took that chip, I was like, I, don't, I can't even explain it, but something happened. And I was like, instantly, I started to bawl my eyes out because I knew in my head and in my heart that my relationship with alcohol was over. And I was like, it almost felt like I was losing someone. And I was like, oh my God, this is really painful. Like, I can't believe I'm not going to have my comfort. My, my every, at the time it was my everything other than my daughter, of course, but I was very close to Your alcohol. best friend. Yes. Yeah. And, and so I remember I was like, I was crying and I had put the chip in my bra and my daughter looks up at me and she's like, mommy, do you want to put that chip in my jewelry box? And I was like, thanks, honey. But no, I didn't want to like, 
I never wanted to leave it. Like I didn't want to take it out of my bra. And so for, I think for like two weeks, obviously I showered and stuff, but like every day I woke up and I got dressed and I put that chip in my bra. So anyway, that is how I be- like started my sobriety journey. But the interesting thing is, is like I said, I mentioned something in the strong ass women group the other day that I was thinking about alcohol and I wanted to post a video about why I am still fighting so hard and why I still want to be sober. And I, you know, why did I do this in the first place? And one of the biggest reasons is when my daughter was going through this whole uh, thing with the abuse and stuff, we had to go to court and we went to court for about four and a half, almost five years. We were in and out of court because we had to go to like a, a first court, I guess you would call it to see if there was enough evidence to send it to a second court, like a higher court. And we won that one. And then the second court one that we went to, he had fired his lawyer. So they had to do it again. And then the third time he was in jail on another charge. And like, it was just, it was a really long drawn out process. And my daughter had to point him out. Like she had to stand in front of him and point him out four times. And I was like, this kid has been through so much crap. Like the fact that she's had to do this four times. And I remember myself and my ex-boyfriend were considered the only witnesses in her case even though we didn't see anything and we weren't there to see anything, we were the only ones that she told the story to. So they were going to use us as witnesses in the case when they tried it at the higher court. I remember my daughter went up to be questioned and this was about, about a year into my sobriety and the prosecutors, I guess they got up and they were saying, they were trying to like rip us apart, me and my ex-boyfriend. So they were saying to my daughter, like this, 11 year old at the time they were like isn't it true your mom's a drunk isn't it true your your stepdad's a drunk isn't it true they do drugs all the time isn't it true that they're neglectful and they're this and they were just listing off things as and reasons as to why we were horrible witnesses and horrible parents and I remember like my daughter stood up and she was like actually no my mom has been sober for a whole year now I remember sitting there and I remember like instantly I was crying because I was thinking like could you imagine how hard that would have been for her if I wasn't? I felt I feel like she would have felt like she had to lie for me. Mm-hmm. And the fact that she was able to say and, and not lie and stand up and say like, no, my mom is sober now was like huge for me. And I remember that was my very first time where I actually felt like, I mean, obviously getting sober felt really good, but that, that was like, okay, I understand now why I'm sober. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it sounds like the way you're telling the story is like, she could say that with pride. Yeah. yeah. Like That's that her mommy is sober, like that she was, she could be proud of you. Yeah. That's huge. Yeah. I was really, I remember just thinking like, thank God that I got sober. And I honestly felt like, obviously I didn't want to be an alcoholic or a drug addict and I wouldn't wish that on anybody. But I remember thinking like, I got sober just in time for her. Like, I wish I wasn't an alcoholic, but at the, like, at the time it was like, the way my daughter's life was going and the things that she was doing. As soon as I got sober, my daughter's life went down like bad. And I remember like to this day, I think about the fact there has been so many times where my daughter has almost died. And if I was drinking, I don't know what I would have done. I don't even know if I would have been there. In AA, they want you to believe in a higher power. It doesn't have to be God. It doesn't have to be, it's just some, a higher power of your understanding. And so I have my idea of what my higher power is. And I remember thinking, I felt like my daughter's higher power and my higher power, if they're not the same thing, they're working together because I got sober as soon as she needed me to. So that kind of leads me into the fact that she is also a recovering alcoholic addict. And the last 
10 years of my life with my daughter has been so hard, so hard. It's still pretty hard, but my daughter has, she's okay with me talking about this. She thinks that sharing her story, if it could help anybody, she wants to, and I'm so proud of her for that, but she has borderline personality disorder. She's been diagnosed with so many different mental illnesses, I guess. When she was about 10 or 11, she started cutting herself. And I, I remember hearing that when kids cut themselves, they cut themselves as like a cry for attention. And I remember thinking, I brought her and her friend to Hot Topic one day, and they both had like wristbands on their arms. And I asked my daughter, like, why are you wearing a wristband? She's like, oh, it's just a thing. We're just doing this nowadays or whatever. And I was like, oh, okay. And so one day I caught her without the wristbands, and I saw that she had had like multiple cuts up and down her arms. And I was thinking, if she's doing it for attention, then why is she hiding it from me? Like she was hiding it with wristbands. And I was like, what the hell's going on? So I took her to counseling for that. And then things just got so bad. The hardest part about all of this was that I had so much guilt from being an alcoholic when she was a child. Everything that she was going through, I felt like it was my fault. And she never said that. She never played on that. That's how I felt. Like every, like every single thing, I enabled the hell out of her because I thought enabling was loving. And I've learned a lot now that, that there's a very fine line between those two. And that she went through absolute hell. She attempted suicide three times. I live on the sixth floor and she was actually hanging from my balcony and the police came and they were like a bunch of police cars were downstairs and I remember we had gotten into a fight one day and she had gone crazy and this is the first time I've ever seen her go crazy she was breaking everything in the house smashing dishes she had torn her room apart and I was kind of just standing there in shock like what am I like what am I doing like what what are you doing like I, I was like what the hell's going on and I remember she looked at me and she's like mom I don't want to be here anymore and she's like I don't know what's wrong with me but I just I don't feel good. And I was like, what can I do? And she was just going crazy. And she had smashed all these glasses on the balcony outside, like a bunch of different glasses on the balcony. And it's a cement balcony and she's outside and she climbed up onto the, the railing. She had climbed up on it and she's like, mom, I'm, I gotta, I'm out. Like, I can't do this anymore. And I remember thinking like, I wanted to, to pull her in but I didn't have any shoes on. And I knew that if I went up the balcony, I was going to get glass in my feet and then I wouldn't be able to like, like, could I still grab her? So I was like thinking in my head, do I run around and get, like, do I turn around and get my shoes? But if I leave her, she's going to fall. And I was like panicking. And I don't even remember how it ended or what, what happened. I just remember she was hanging from the balcony and then all of a sudden there was police in my house and she was okay. And I was like, oh my God, thank God. And they, they took her to the hospital and she was in for quite a while. And then she did it again. I was at work one day and I got a call from her actually. And she's like, mom, I'm not feeling good. And I'm like, what's the matter? And she's like, I'm just not feeling good. I'm like, what? She's like, I, I took something. I'm like, what did you take? She's like, I took a bottle of pills. And I'm like, what? And so I, I freaked out and I dropped everything and I got my friend to drive me home. And when I had got home, she was in the bathtub and she was naked at the time. I think she was like 13 or 14. And she didn't like for me to see her naked. Like she just, she was very private that way. And I was okay with that. I remember going into the bathroom and seeing her and she didn't care that I saw her naked. And I remember thinking she had carved a bunch of words into her arms and put blood all over the water. And I called the ambulance to come and take her. And she had told the ambulance driver that she had taken an entire bottle of Tylenol and downed it with laundry soap because she had heard laundry soap is like deadly or something. So at first I thought maybe she was just saying this to like, make people think that she's really serious but in the in the ambulance when I was in there with her she was literally vomiting green laundry soap and I was like what am I gonna do 
for her? Like, how am I supposed to help her? And this is only, like, done this a few times. And I remember she had a really hard childhood. And like I said, she was abused. When she was about 15, she lost her best friend to suicide. So she had that to deal with. And all I wanted was for her to be okay and be alive. And, like, I, I remember people used to say to me, they'd be like, I smell weed coming from your daughter's room or something. And I'm like, okay. And they're like, you're not going to do anything about that? And I'm like, if you had any idea what I've gone through with her, like, the fact that she's in her room smoking weed and not dead is like, like, what do I want to I have to pick Weed doesn't seem that bad. Yeah. So I was just like, <laughs> guys, like you have no idea. Like it's, it's been really hard. And so for the last, like I said, 10 years, she's just been in and out of the hospital and using drugs and alcohol nonstop pretty much. I remember after last Christmas, we were waiting for her to get into treatment. And uh, it was about a six month waiting period because of COVID. And because I don't have $15,000 to put my daughter into treatment right away. Which so is, long. Yeah, it's super shitty. And that's one of the main reasons why I am doing this strong ass women group because I want to be able to like raise money to help people get into treatment because so many people lose their lives in that six month period. Or, you know, people yeah. like I honestly, I swear to God, guys, I thought to myself, what can I do, legal or illegal, to make this money? Because I was like, I have to save her life. Like I gotta do something. So I was thinking about like mm-hmm. horrible things. Anyway, we were holding on for six months. And I remember last Christmas, I, I came home and we had Christmas and everything. And I went back to work and my coworker had said to me the day after the holidays, he's like, so how was your holidays? And I was like, oh, it's, it's, it's okay. And he's like, uh, he's like, did everything go okay with Abby? And I'm like, yeah, he knows a lot. Like he's, we're very close. And I said, yeah, because if she's okay, just, you know, the regular stuff. And I'm like, I just have to go every day before I leave for work and just make sure, you know, I open her door and make sure she's breathing, like her stomach is moving. And he's looking at me with like horror in his face. Like, what do you mean? And I'm like, yeah, every day before I leave for work, I open her room door and make sure her stomach is breathing because of all of the drugs and alcohol that she was consuming. And I, when I looked at him and he was looking at me, I was like, to me, this had been my normal for so long. So much. This trauma. is just what I do. Yeah. And like the stuff that we had gone through for the last 10 years, like I said, has been absolute crazy. And so back on March 10th, we had got her into treatment. And I just was holding on to get her into treatment. Like I was literally holding on and I didn't realize how much it was affecting me until I got her to treatment and I walked her through the doors and I turned around and like, I couldn't even get down the stairs. I was like a mess, like just falling mess because I was like, oh my God, she's in there. She's okay. And like, I can't believe I got her in there. And I think all of that emotion and fear and guilt and just a million different feelings was like just trapped in there. And I didn't even like, I was just like, don't let them out. Don't do it. Like, don't, don't just get through this. Yeah. Just like get through with this. And that was uh, March 10th of this year. And yeah, she was in for 28 days, which I don't think is long enough, but that's what you get with the government, I guess. And it was a great treatment center. I can't say any enough about them. They were fantastic. And every day that she was in there, she wasn't on any medication. A lot of people that were in there were getting like sleeping aids and different like anxiety medications. And she was offered those and she's like, no, I don't want anything. And I remember talking to her and saying like, well, why aren't you taking anything? It'll help you sleep. And she's like, no, because then I'm just transferring one addiction for another. And I'm like, yeah, but some people need medications. And I'm like, I'm not trying to talk her into it, but I just thought maybe she didn't have to, it didn't have to be so difficult for her. 
but I was so proud of her that she got through that whole time without anything. So sleeping aids, no anxiety medication, nothing. And we had talked every night that she was in treatment. We talked for about 45 minutes. She was allowed to make one phone call by payphone if she called me. And it was the most I had ever talked to my daughter, the most we had connected in the 21 years that she's been on this earth. And it was the most amazing feeling in the entire world. And then <laughs> she left a few days early. She left treatment against their wishes. And I was so devastated by that because I thought that that was a really huge red flag, like something was wrong. And so I don't know, I think, I don't know if you saw Tisha, but we had redone her room. Like her room was like an addict's room for a long time and it was pretty bad. And so me and my, my mom and my stepdad, we gutted it and painted it and added all these nice things. And we made it like a serene place for her to come home to. And I was talking to her on the phone and I'm like, Abby, if you leave, you can't come home to this room. Like this was your reward for, you know, getting through treatment and everything. And she's like, no, I'm leaving. I don't care. And so anyway, we, we had this like small falling out and she went to her boyfriend's house and she had proved to me that throughout this like week, I think it was that she had been sober all this time. And so we decided, my mom and I were talking, we decided that she could come home to her room, but she had to pay us for the stuff that we had done for her room, just so that like she had some sort of, like, we didn't feel like it was fair for us to be working this hard. She wasn't fulfilling her, work, her right. end of the bargain or whatever. Yeah. Right. So anyway, she came home and things are slowly going back to the way they were, which is crappy. I was really hoping that things would change completely but I know what I have to do and it's just super hard to do like doing it I don't think she's using again I don't think she's drinking again but she's the old behaviors are coming back she's um, staying out at all hours of the night and like her rooms and like just little things that like, like just I can tell that she's just kind of falling back into her old patterns and she knows like we've talked about this this isn't she we I asked her if it was okay if we talk about this kind of stuff and she's perfectly fine with me talking about anything and honestly at this point the only way for me to how I anyway how I feel anyway is the only way for me to save her life and to keep her on the straight track is to ask her to leave my apartment and it sucks because I'm so scared of what might happen but I enable mm -hmm. her. I love her so much and I have so much guilt and everything else that like, I don't know how to not enable her. And like, I, I, I've gone to Al-Anon meetings. I've gone to like, I'm trying to figure out how to detach myself from her, but love her and not enable her and all that stuff. And that's a really difficult thing. Like there's just, there's a fine line between enabling and loving. And I think that's the biggest problem for parents with children who are addicts is that you want to be there to protect them. You're, you're terrified. If I take my son out and he overdoses like what the hell am I going to think like how am I going to get through life and then right. something that I just keep telling myself is like what if you don't kick your son out and he overdoses in his room like you've allowed that to happen you know what I mean like so like I'm not saying that either one of those would be ideal but I mean you can't control the outcome so like the best chance for her is for me to force her to deal with life's consequences and for the 21 years of her life, I've cleaned up her mess. She's had a cushion to land on. And I, I, it sucks to say this, and I don't know if it might not be something that people agree with, but I definitely feel like in order to really fight for your life, you have to hit bottom. And I, I've heard people say this, and I've also heard people disagree with it because they feel like it sends this message to addicts and alcoholics that like you have to hit a bottom before you can go get help. And if you feel like you didn't hit bottom, what are you going to still use and wait till you hit that mm -hmm. bottom but I know 
personal experience, if I didn't feel like, I honestly felt like if I didn't stop, drugs and alcohol were going to kill me. I was going to lose everything. And so I, I did things that most people wouldn't do unless they felt like they had to fight for their life. You know what I mean? So like, mm-hmm. I feel like she's never had that. And I, I think the reason why she went to treatment was because it was an ultimatum. I told her she goes or she leaves the, the house. And so she went willingly, but she went because she had no other option. She didn't go for the right reason. She didn't go because she wanted to. She didn't go because right. she was fighting for her life. She went to shut her mom up for a little while. And I think there was part of her that went because she wanted to be okay. She wanted to feel better. Mm-hmm. And she really did do really well when she was in there. And I know that from where she was to where she is today, it's a huge change. But it's just a work in progress. And I think it's going to be really hard the next few years or whatever however long it takes but I have to like put my foot down and try to love her into recovery if I can I don't know if that's a possibility but yeah so that's basically my story <laughs> I don't know how and it, I think like it's it's a, it's a journey right and sometimes if you don't know anybody who's struggled with alcoholism or addiction and you just see what you see on tv it's they get treatment and they're better mm-hmm. and that's it but I think it can be a journey. And for some people, there's multiple periods of like sobriety using going back into recovery. Like sometimes there's that kind of cycle and it's not all smooth. And that doesn't necessarily mean that someone's failing. That's true too. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Like it doesn't mean they're not going to get there. Yeah. And it doesn't mean they didn't learn anything or they didn't like right yeah that they're not learning along the way absolutely you know just listening to you talk about what that's like as a parent it sounds just so impossible as a parent like and you're talking about the guilt like I know my kids are young but I know like the mom guilt is real right and it does can cause us to maybe be a little bit more protective or do more things. For well, them and I think also you know, like seeing your children in pain and again, yeah, you just want to do story. anything, you know, for, for us, my kids are young too, but they are dealing with the immense pain of having lost to their father. And, and when you said how you kind of like collapsed when you walked her through those doors, it reminded me of something that my therapist said in one of our first meetings where she was just like, there's a lot of this that you're not going to process as long as they're small and at home mm-hmm. because you can't safely do that around them because you want to protect them from it. Yeah. Um, and obviously it's very different, but I think it all kind of feeds into this idea of what it is to be a parent and, yeah, and how a lot of us are like holding on and doing the best we can. And most of the time we don't even <laughs> know if we're doing the best we can, you know what I mean? We're just holding on and going through the motions and, and just trying to figure it out. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but you know, when you talk about just collapsing, it's, you know, it sounds like you just are hoping she's alive every day. Yeah. Like literally you were checking to see if your child was breathing and that became your normal. So I have to think that once you got her into treatment, that that must've been an enormous kind of weight off your shoulder that you're like, Oh, she's safe now. And then you kind of had this emotional release, right? Someone else is taking that job for a bit. Yeah. Honestly, my daughter has been in the hospital a few times. She's been in jail and she's been in treatment. And those were the times I think in the last 10 years that I actually slept, fully slept. And I know it sounds bad to say like, oh, my kid's in the hospital, I can sleep now. 
but when she was in the hospital and she had made it to the hospital, she was still alive. I knew that she was going to be okay for the next few days. And I was able to like breathe a little bit. And somebody was able to watch her 24 seven. Yeah. Cause you can't do that alone. Yeah. And she has no control over what's happening in her life. You know what I mean? Like every day she has her idea of what she wants to do and she gets to decide whether she goes right to left. But when you're in jail or treatment or hospital, like you don't get to leave and you're forced to be okay for a few days. And that just kind of lets me breathe, even though it's a kind of a crappy circumstance, but yeah. Yeah. Right. It is a crappy, like your daughter's in jail, but you can breathe. Yeah. Um, however, I think that there are probably a lot of people who are going to know exactly what you're talking about. I wanted to ask you something that, you know, is coming from somebody who doesn't struggle with alcohol or addiction. And I, I don't completely understand it, but I wonder like, what is that like as a person in recovery to be around someone who's act in active use? like an active addiction, like how like living, living with someone. I think it's speaking from my experience. I, I think it might be a little bit worse because I know the lengths that I went to and the things that I did to use and to be able to get money to do things. And I think people who aren't alcoholics or addicts, their minds don't go there. Like they don't think, Oh my God, like if you don't have your drug, you're going to go prostitute yourself or you're going to go, you know, rob this old lady. Like you don't think that like those those are the things that are kind of like maybe like the very back of your mind. But with me, I, anytime she was out, I was thinking of all the times that I was out and the stupid things that I had done and the horrible accidents that I got into. And so like, it was really hard to, to be an alcoholic and to also be around somebody who's an addict and an alcoholic, especially your child, because I mean, who do you love more than your child? You know, but honestly, I, at the same time, it also gives me a little bit of an advantage because I can see through her shit. Like she doesn't, there's nothing like I can tell what she's using in a second. I can tell what she's drinking in a second. And I also yeah, know, she can't hide any of that from yeah, you. Yeah. And I also know what it takes, not necessarily what it takes because nobody can make somebody else get sober, but I know what helps and what doesn't help. And so it helps in a sense, but at the same time, I don't know. I mean, I guess it's one of those things where you just have to, I don't know if it's better to be an alcoholic and have an alcoholic child or to not be an alcoholic and have an alcoholic child. I don't really know what's better or what's worse, but also like in my situation, I know so many people in AA and in Al-Anon. And I remember like, there's even AA and Al-Anon meetings. Like they have them at the same time and they have a speaker come up and speak about, speak for AA. And then they have a speaker come up and speak for Al-Anon. And a lot of times, like there are people who are in AA who also do Al-Anon. Like I have friends of mine who are 10 years or 20 years sober and they're married to an alcoholic. And I'm like, how the hell do you live like that? Like, I don't know how they do it. So they have AA for themselves and Al-Anon for their husbands. And I'm like, oh my God, but it's so helpful because they teach you how to detach yourself and to still love somebody, but not make everything they do your problem and not make like Al-Anon helps you stop being addicted to the person in your life who's using or you know, drinking or whatever. And it's like, it's a great program for anybody who's dealing with anybody. They don't know how to, they don't know how to handle it. Al-Anon is huge because it teaches you that you, you cannot control somebody else's moves. And you know, like Mm -hmm. they, they teach you like how not to enable. And like, I heard this thing on radio the other day, they were talking about like, what's the difference between loving and enabling. And like, I listen to YouTube videos about this all the time because I really want to know, like, am I loving my child or am I enabling? And this guy had said, loving is for them. Enabling is for you. And I was like, wait, what? So I was like thinking about that. And I, I believe that's true. Like if you have a child Mm. 
and they are asking you, like they're calling you from a friend's house and they're saying, mom, I lost my, or I've lost my 50 bucks and I need money to get home. And you know that they're a user and you know that they drink and you know that they've had money before. This is the 18th time they've called you and done this. You giving them money is enabling them. At the same time, you're thinking to yourself, if I don't give them money, how is she going to get home? I'm going to be a bad mother if I don't give her money. But that's like, you're doing it because you want to settle your worry. You're doing it because you want to, you don't want to have the fight with this child. Or yeah, that's argument. what I was thinking. Yeah. So it's like, there's so many times where like, I'll come home and I'll be like, oh, Abby didn't do what I asked her to do. And I'm like, oh, I'm not in the mood to fight with her tonight. That's for me. Mm-hmm. That's not for her. You know what I mean? Like I'm, I'm trying to like, and I, it's, it's human. Like we don't want to feel like shit every time I come home from work, but like you have to love the person in your life enough to be uncomfortable. And that's the thing that sucks. Like I, I honestly, like in order to give my daughter the best chance, I have to be uncomfortable all the time. Because <laughs> like, yeah, it's just I'm right now she's living with me. So you know, it is what it is. But that if anybody's ever wondering, like, if, am I enabling? Or am I loving? You just have to think about that. Like if, if somebody's asking you for something, and you're giving it to them, why are you giving it to them? Are you giving it to them? So that, you know, they stop asking you? Or are you giving it to them? Because you think it's truly going to help them? Like, ask yourself yeah yeah and, and it because you're avoiding the conflict or because you don't want to feel guilty like is it for you yeah or for them it's um it's an interesting way to think about it yeah like enabling makes you feel better whatever that better is it might not be markedly better but makes you feel better when loving makes that person feel better yeah yeah mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe not. Yeah, it might not feel better for the moment because they'll be like, "What the hell?" Yeah, it's not helping. Right, so exactly. And sometimes the loving them is Ultimately. like more that kind of Ultimately. tough love. Yeah, right. Exactly. Like, exactly. Like, I know this like, is gonna hurt, but you and says, or like, to make, loving is to like make them better. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's the thing. Like, I was thinking about this when I was doing dishes earlier, and it's like if if somebody in your life is you're wondering if you're enabling them and they call you and they say, Hey, I need 50 bucks because of whatever. And you give them that $50. They don't learn the lesson of what happens when you lose that $50. And like, so they, the next time they need it, they're just going to pick up the phone and call you again, or they're going to, you know, figure out another way. So yeah, it's just something that I found that helps me try to figure out if I'm loving or enabling my daughter. And I swear to God, I ask myself that question 500 times a day. So anybody else dealing with it, I get it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And it's, there's a lot of people who are dealing with it. Yeah. Yeah. Let's be real. I would imagine it's been exacerbated, I think, in this time that we're living in right now too. Yeah. And another thing I just wanted to mention really quickly is I'm finding, like, so when my daughter came out of treatment, they, they don't do, I mean, you can find in-person AA meetings. You can find a few, like where they have like groups of 10 or less or whatever, Mm -hmm. but because of the lockdown and everything else, like a lot of the meetings are online. And so when she got out of treatment, she was doing her meetings every day, but she would have her meeting on her laptop and then like be like playing a game off in the corner. And like nobody, like yeah. you don't have to pay attention. You don't have to like, but when you're in person and you go into like an actual meeting, you have to listen and you got to like take part. And like, so with COVID, I find it really hard for people to stay sober, especially like online meetings and stuff. Like I just feel like yeah. it's not the same. And I'm hoping yeah. that it changes soon. But yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so and some people need that in person yeah right things are starting to open up so hopefully that will open up for her and for you as well right like there's something I think about having that community that is part of the journey right yeah and having that place where you belong you know another thing is like with my daughter being the daughter of an alcoholic 
she has been to a lot of meetings with me. She's been to my like one year medallion, my five year medallion. Like she's been to everything. And the first year I got my one mm-hmm. month, my two month, my three month chip, and she was there at every single meeting. And because of that, she know firsthand that there is a cure. You can go and you can get help. And I can tell you right now that when I first decided that I wanted to get help or that I needed to get help for my alcoholism, my first instinct was to go to my doctor and ask him for a drug called antibuse, which makes you sick when you drink. And he refused to give it to me. But I did not think AA. I didn't think that a church basement was going to help me get sober. I was like, there's no freaking way in hell. I have tried right. thousands of times to get sober. And you're going to tell me that walking down to a church basement is going to make me sober. I'm like, there's no way in hell. But the fact that it did, like, and it does for millions of people, like, and the fact that my daughter got to see it firsthand, she knows there's a cure, which I think is huge when it comes to addiction and alcoholism, because I honestly thought that nothing was going to cure me. And that fear alone keeps you drinking. So at least she knows there's something. She knows it's possible. Yeah. You have proven it's possible. Yeah. Every day you show her that it's possible. Yeah. Thanks. (laughs) Yeah. Do you want to tell us a little bit, um, you've touched on it, you've mentioned it a couple of times, but do you want to tell us a little bit about what you're doing at Strong Ass Women and how that kind of started? Because I think it's, I think it's really inspiring, Thanks. <laughs> frankly. No, I, uh, honestly, I just started the group um, because it was actually an AA thing that I decided to start because I had been trying to get women together to go on like dinners and meetings or walks or whatever. And I was like tired of like messaging people individually so I just made a group and I was like you know what these people are all awesome people so we're just going to name it strong ass women and then at the time it was only like 10 or 15 people and we were talking we would like make dates to go for dinner and stuff and then I remember one day I was just running outside at the park and I had my entire life I had have I've had this hate with my body and I torture myself every day with exercise and like brutal exercise too like I'm constantly exercising and it I remember on this specific day, I was running around and it was raining and I stopped for a minute after I was done running and I filmed the video and I was like talking about how much it sucks that I can't just be happy in my own skin. And like, I posted it in this strong women group and I was like, oh my God, people are going to judge me and think I'm crazy. And like, I look like shit and I'm just like, oh, well, I'm just going to post it. And when I posted it, after I posted it, so many people were like, me too, girl, I feel that way too. And thank you for saying that. And it was very opposite of what I thought. I thought people were going to judge me and not, you know, just not want to care what I have to say and just be like, whatever, like get on with your life. So the fact that they were really like, like awesome and supportive and everything, I just started to share more and more and more. And the more I shared, the better I felt and things, I met so many amazing people and the group just started to grow. Like just lots of people came in and they wanted to be part of the group. And I don't know exactly how it happened, but, you know, women would come into the group and they would love what they saw. And then they would invite like 50 people to come into the group. And I'm like, oh my God, this is amazing. And I was just so happy about that. And then, and then it got to a point where I realized that there is so much power behind women who have been through it all. And I figured, like, I was thinking to myself, like, what, I have to do something with this power because like, this is, these women are all incredible and we can do so much with this. Like, what can I do with this? And I just started to think, and I'm like, maybe I can, you know, make like a clothing brand or something and sell and make lots of money. And I started thinking for myself, like, can I make money, become rich and whatever. And then I'm like, no, that's not going to work. And I was thinking to myself, like, I want something sustainable, something that's going to keep me going for the rest of my life. And then I was thinking, you know what, I'm part of Alcoholics Anonymous. And the biggest part of Alcoholics Anonymous is giving back it keeps you sober and so I was like you know what maybe if I can start 
making things and selling them and then taking some of the profits and helping people like helping women maybe even just women in the group or you know whatever maybe I could do that and then I started talking about it and making things and people were really interested and they wanted to help and I've had I've had like I have a board of directors and everybody who's on it is on it because they want to be like they're not getting paid they're not you know like awesome and so like what I'm doing like I just I actually just lost my job and my last day is the 15th of June and I was really upset about it at first but it's going to give me a few months to like take some time and work on strong as women and I think within the next month or two I'm hoping to have I'm hoping that we'll be incorporated because right now we're not and it takes a lot to get incorporated like it's it's expensive it's like there's just so much paperwork and stuff involved. So I need to get a lawyer and all this other stuff. So I was thinking about doing like a fundraiser to raise the funds for that. And thank you, Tisha, you gave me some really good ideas. Um, I actually <laughs> brought it by the uh, the admin team and they loved it. We're just a little worried about running a fundraiser because we don't know the legalities of it all. Like I've heard, you know, you're not supposed to and you can, and I, don't, I don't know. So we're not sure yet, but I'm really excited. I think that it can really go somewhere. And even if for some reason it doesn't go anywhere, it has helped me so much I'm an introvert I don't like talking to people I know it sounds weird because I post videos all the time on strong as women that's so mind. different though than talking to people in person yes, yes it is it, it really is. is yeah people mm-hmm. ask me that all the time they're like well how come you say you're shy but you you know put all these videos up and it's like it's just it's my I, I, I'm an introvert I don't like hanging out with people I'm very close I like my dog in my room and like so this way I'm able to talk about my problems and get them out there and I get help I get real help from people I've met some of the most amazing women I had an eviction meeting because I was I've always been really bad with money but I had an eviction meeting um, I was going to lose my apartment and then I've had everything's gotten better but this was about a year ago and I went on strong as women and I told everybody that I was I was facing eviction and I was like this is really embarrassing and blah 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 and when I ended the video I got so many messages from people like do you need money and I'm like no that was the last reason why I posted this I'm posting this like I refused to take money from anybody for that but they were offering me money and so many people were saying like uh I've been there I've been where you are and thank you for saying something because like people are so ashamed of it like a lot of us Mm -hmm. get into like debt and credit card problems and so they were really happy that I had done that and then I was sitting at work one day and I was getting ready for my eviction hearing and a friend of mine or my co-worker came into my office with like this big wrap thing and I was like what is that and he's like I don't know it just came in the mail and I opened it up and it was from a woman who I had never met in strong ass women saying good luck today and I instantly tears and I was just like oh my god this woman who I don't even know is like she remembered the day she figured out where I worked and sent me this plant and like it was just the most amazing feeling in the world so like I I just love I love and that's one more thing I just wanted to mention I used to hate women hate them I had the worst relationship with women because I used to think that I I was terrified of them. I was jealous of all of them. I thought that every woman was prettier than me and better than me and stronger than me and skinnier than me. And my ex-boyfriend would always cheat on me with these women. And I would always like compare myself to them. And I, I really did not like women at all until I entered Alcoholics Anonymous. And then I started, my first sponsor was a woman and I met all these different women. And I also met men in AA and they were really like really nice to me, really wanted to help me, but they were little by little became a little bit creepy and like wanted different things. And I was like, you know what? I realized one day that like women are helping me because they want to help me. And these men, how do you know what they, they, you don't know what they want from me, but these women are genuine. They're actually helping me because they want to help me. And then instantly my, my relationship changed with women. And I also quickly, just one quick story. I met this woman 
who is in Strong As Women. She's incredibly beautiful. And my boyfriend had been talking to her um, through Messenger and stuff. And I had seen on his phone that he had been talking to her. And I was like, what the hell? Like, I, I was so jealous instantly. And he's like, oh, we're just friends, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, no, you, there's no way that you're just friends with her. Like, you, I know you, you think she's hot or whatever. So I remember we got into a fight one day and I messaged this woman. I was at the Scarborough Town Center and I'm like messaging her. I'm like, um, I know this is weird, but like by chance, did my boyfriend like ever hit on you? And like, is there anything going on between you guys? And as soon as I hit send, I was like, what the hell is wrong with you? Like, why are you doing this? And so she sent me a yeah. message back and she's like, girl, you need to love yourself. And that was the like, the, I did not expect that response from her. So I was just like, okay, whatever. And I felt really stupid after that. But then I went to a meeting to speak and I went to the bathroom. And she walked in and I was like, great, I have to speak and this woman's here. And I was like, so pissed that she was there. And she looks at me and she's like, are you nervous? And I'm like, yeah. And she's like, don't be nervous. You're going to be fine. She's like, look at me. And if, if you get nervous, look at me. And I was like, oh my God, she's so nice. And then like, I, as I was telling my story, I could see her starting to cry. And she was like really into what I was saying. And, and I was like, wow, this person's probably really cool. And I like hated her instantly because she was pretty and because she was talking to my boyfriend and she ended up being like my sponsor. And she was just like the most amazing woman ever. And she made me change my mind about women. And, and like, now I want as many strong women in my life as possible because every day they surprise me. And I just, I love women. <laughs> yeah. Well, we have so much power and so much wisdom and I think it can be intimidating I yeah. guess. Right. But I think um, what you're doing there is, is fantastic. And it's just a lot of people just lifting each other up and encouraging each other. And there's a it's lot kind of, of, it sounds like, you know, the really, what is amazing about social media? There's yeah. so much that you could say like to blast it and yeah. that's harmful and bad and whatever, but it sounds like it really, you harnessed what's special about social media. Really? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's awesome. I'm not going to lie. There are some like little things here and there that that creep up. I mean, there's always going to be with numbers like now, I think it's close to 1500 people. And that's wow. you're going to get people who don't agree with you or have problems. And there's been some interesting things, but like <laughs> out of 1500 women and the fact that I can count on one hand how many times things have gotten out of control, it's pretty incredible. And so yeah. I, it's just it's awesome. And I'm just I'm so excited for the future. And like Sorry, I know I keep saying one more story, but when I was when my daughter was in treatment, I sent her a couple of packages um, because of COVID, you can't visit them. So I sent her like quarters and like a bunch of other things. And I had sent her um, a bunch of strong ass women bags and masks and stuff to give out to the other women in the in the treatment center. And I remember she was telling me like these women were so excited to get these masks and these bags and everything. And so she took a picture of the lunchroom. And in the lunchroom, there was like all these different chairs set up and each chair had like a book and a strong ass woman bag, like hung over this back of the chair. And I was like, oh my God, I'm like, there, everyone has these bags. And I'm like, it just made me feel so great. And like, I don't know, I just, I, it makes me, it, I took something that I absolutely, like I didn't like women. I was so scared of them. And I took something and I flipped it around and, and forced myself to think differently. And little by little, it's made me like absolutely change my mind about women. And I love that because women are around and they're going to be in our lives and we have to deal with it. And like, I absolutely, I've made so many amazing relationships. So I'm really happy about that. That's amazing. We will um, definitely share a link to the group in the show notes. Amazing. Amazing. Thank you so much for being on the show and sharing your story. Um, We really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Jessica. Honestly, thank you for letting me, letting me speak. 
I really appreciate it. You guys are awesome. Thanks for listening to Now What? If you've enjoyed this episode, leave us a review. Your ratings and reviews help more people like you find our podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and share this episode with someone you think would love it. And make sure to find us on Instagram at nowwhat underscore podcast. Until next time, we're Tisha and Jen. Remember, your hard times are the chance to write another chapter.